Father, I pray that as we study your word today, that you would bless us richly for this time. I pray that, uh, that I would be no hindrance to the truth of your word coming out, that, uh, that you would speak by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word, that what I say would be truthful, that would be a true reflection of your intent in this passage and that you might be glorified through the teaching of your word today. Lord, I pray especially today for anyone with a soft and tender and broken heart. They may be encouraged and lifted up today. They might see you and they might trust you and they may be encouraged in who you are. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, James chapter 5 and verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Well, there's so much there to unpack. Let's just take a step back and let's remember where we are. We've had a week away um, from James, so... We could probably do with a reminder, and we need to have a reminder as well, because of course, here in this section, we have the word therefore, and as you well know, when you see the word therefore, you've always got to ask, what's it there for? It's referring us back to the previous section, and we always, we've seen in the book of James constantly, each new section seems to be, well, for the most part, seems to be introduced by a command. And then the reference to the brothers and sisters in Christ there. So here we have that again. Be patient, brothers and sisters. So we have a command to be patient. But this command is therefore based upon what has preceded it. So let's take this opportunity just to have a quick recap of what has preceded it. So that we understand what is going on in this passage. When he says... um, be patient, it is in the context of this. Everything falls back to the main commands that came following the sort of theological peak at the end of chapter 3, that reminder that we <clears throat> must not be double-minded, that, there, that we need to understand that there is heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. There is God's way and there is man's way. And we need to choose which way we will go. And then the commands came following that with this question, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And that is the foundation for everything that's followed subsequently. This idea that when there is conflict, when there is, that when there is fighting, quarreling between us, whether it's as, as spouses, whether it's as friends, whether it's as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, that when we have this conflict, it is always, always for one reason predominantly. And of course there's a multitude of reasons, but at the core of it all there is one reason. The reason is this. There's conflict because we are not getting what we want. 
Our passions aren't being satisfied. Our needs aren't being met, to put it in modern parlance. And this is the overriding problem that then leads. It's like, well, I don't want to be treated this way, and you're treating me this way. And there's the tension that then leads to the fighting. So when we don't get what we want, then there is the potential for conflict. And all of this is really emphasizing the reality that... James has been pushing right the way through this book, which is that we have this problem in that we are double-minded, double-souled. We, we, we want to follow Jesus. We want to follow God. We want to do what's right. We want to be people of the word. We want to be obedient to Christ in all things. But at the same time, we want to be comfortable. We want to be cozy. We don't want conflict. We don't want troubles. We don't want difficulties. We don't want problems. We want everything to go the way that we want it to go. And throughout the book, James has been telling us that's not possible. You can't have your cake and eat it in this case. You, you can't have a life where, <clears throat> where you say, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to go wherever he leads. I am all about Jesus. It's all about him. And then at the same point, be in your heart just saying, well, it's all about me. I'm not getting what I want. And, and because we see that tension, that, that disconnect, we, we tend to spiritualize all of our selfish desires. And we, we make them very Christian, you know? So, you know, like we spoke about last week, when there's spousal conflict, it's always a case of, well, you know, the scripture says that she should be doing this. And she's not doing what she should be doing. The scripture says he should be like this, and he's not being like this. And so we've always, we're passing the, the problem elsewhere, whereas James is, is being brutal with us and pointing it back to us and saying, uh-uh, that may well be true that they're not doing what they're supposed to do. But because you're not getting what you expect, your passions aren't being met. They're, this is the problem of the conflict within you. Now, all of that is to say that James then goes on to say that we are therefore enemies of God when we seek, um, we're, we're adulterous, when we seek to be friendly with the world, not in the sense of being worldly in the traditional sense that we might talk about it, but we're worldly, we're, we're friends of the world when we want to satisfy ourselves and also be seen to be faithful to God. That's the worldliness that he speaks of. And Therefore, he came to this very important phrase where he quotes from the book of Proverbs, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Are we going to be humble and say, you know what? I'm not going to get what I want in this life. I'm not going to achieve my goals. Things aren't going to go the way that I planned. I am not going to be happy with everything that happens. But that's okay because God is sovereign and he's good and I will bow the knee before him. Or are we going to be proud and say, I'm not getting what I want. That's the context of that in the flow of the book of James. And that then led into verse 11 and the command to not speak evil against one another. And the whole of last, last time we were in James, a couple of weeks ago, we dealt with this whole section about uh, not speaking evil against one another. Um, not speaking in a way, again, this conflict that puts somebody else down, that attacks somebody else. Not blaming them and passing the responsibility of the conflict away from ourselves. And there was the reminder that when we do that, we are placing ourselves above the law and above God who gives the law. When we say, no, 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 I'm not the problem, the problem is this other person. 
then we are putting ourselves above God who says, no, 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 the problem is you. Your desires, the passions in your heart. That's the problem. And so we put ourselves above him. And in case in verses 11 and 12, somebody were to say, yeah, i completely with you, James, completely with you here. People shouldn't speak evil against their brothers and sisters in Christ. No, I would never do that. He then has a couple of come nows. Come on, let's be real about this. It's the classic Paul Washer, don't clap, I'm speaking about you kind of stuff. That's what's going on here. What he's saying is, those who will say, well, tomorrow I'm going to go off and I'm going to do this and I'm going to be successful, I'm going to achieve this goal and what have you. That's what I'm talking about, says James. And you're thinking, well, that's not what, that's not what you were talking about, is it, James? And James says, yes, it is what I'm talking about. Because what you're doing here is you're basically saying, things are going to go the way that I want. You're placing the sovereignty and the right of sovereignty upon yourself rather than upon God. And and what James is doing in these two come nows, firstly where he deals with those who are determining that they will be successful, and secondly those who are determining that they uh, are determining things on the basis of having been successful. What he's simply saying is a reminder of this, that this conflict that James is speaking about comes from this place where we're saying, well, things should go the way that I want. And in reality, what we're doing when things don't go the way that we want, we say, well, it's the problem with this situation. Problem. No, it's, it's a problem with God. You're not happy with the way that he is sovereignly holding the universe together. Oh, I'm all about Jesus, but what you've done here in allowing me to be sick, what you've done here in allowing me to be poor, what you've done here in allowing this tragedy come into my life, wasn't quite so good. You need to put that bit right, but we'll worship you for everything else. And that's what James was doing in this section. He's, he was saying, come on, don't think that this isn't speaking about you, this is speaking about you. And that whole section came to an end... In verse um, 6, where he says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. <clears throat> he does not resist you. And I want to remind you of this. Take a little more time on this. Because all of this is relevant to what follows. Hence the therefore. Okay? What he says here at the end is, You've condemned and murdered. That it gives us an inclusio to the beginning of chapter 4. There is this conflict, there's this fighting. Why is there this fighting? Because you don't get what you want, so you murder, he says. The repetition of murder gives us this inclusio, these kind of bookends, sandwich, if you like, holding these two sections together. The repetition of murder. Obviously a reference to Sermon on the Mount, hating someone within your heart is the same as murder. But what is happening here is James has come through the development of this middle section to this, to this statement, this, this realization that when you are angry with the circumstances of your life, when you are angry about how things are going, then you are ultimately angry with God. That's who you're angry with because he's sovereign. And he has allowed these things to happen. So it is him that you are angry with. So now it takes you have condemned and murdered the righteous one. Throughout the scripture, the righteous one is a reference to the Messiah. You're angry with Jesus. You're murdering Jesus in your heart by your anger against him and the way he has sovereignly managed the universe. Because it doesn't suit you. Because you're so narcissistic, you think the entire universe revolves around you, 
rather than us simply being here to glorify God. <sighs> He's brutal, James, but he ends on an even more strong note. When it says he does not resist you, I argued last time, and I'll simply repeat my thesis here, that this should be worded as a question. Does he not resist you? Or more literally, does he not oppose you? Which is a reference back to chapter 4 and verse 6. And God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So when you are in a state where you are rejecting the sovereignty of God, where you are angry with the sovereignty of God, you're not happy with how God is managing the universe, then you are one who in your heart is mur- a murdering God himself and you are rising up above the lawgiver and the law and you are making yourself high and that's what pride is and therefore does God not oppose you. Therefore. See, all of that, therefore, because of all of we've just said for the last however long, be patient. You see, the... The antithesis of pride, the, the, or more accurately, the solution to this prideful state, the solution to this prideful state whereby we think that we should be in charge, this prideful state whereby we think that things should go the way that we want them to go, this prideful state that says, well, you know, forget the rest of the world, everything should go right for me. That prideful state. The solution to it is patience. And that might sound a little bit bizarre initially. But thank goodness James is going to explain it to us. But let's go with it for now. We need to be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Now this sums up the whole passage here that we're going to be dealing with. And the coming of the Lord is mentioned again in a minute. But one thing it tells us is this. Above all else, you're going through your life... And if you are this double-souled person, if you are frustrated with the sovereignty of God, if you are getting yourselves into conflict because things aren't going the way that you would like them to go, if that is your reality, then the command of God to you is just to be patient. To, To accept that right now here in this world, suffering is our lot. It's our portion. That we follow Christ and we follow in his footsteps. That we suffer as he suffered. That we must be mistreated as he was mistreated. Do we expect any better as his followers? And, and so this is how we are. And so what we have to do is we have to be patient and wait. Because there is an end to this. And this is the most glorious truth. Because James... For so much of this book, and I keep using the word, somebody was joking the other day, it's one of my favourite words, and I'll use it again at risk of mockery, but he's been brutal, hasn't he? I mean, he really has. He's just taken our hearts and our pride, and he's just gone... He's just, he's just taken us to pieces, and every excuse that we would have, he's torn it apart... And I feel that when we come to chapter 5 at the end of the book, that James is kind of looking at the wreckage that he's made of us. And he's starting to kind of put it a bit together a little bit. And he's saying, you've got to kill your pride. You've got to embrace trials. You've got to keep on going in faithfulness. You've got 
to not allow your sinful passions within you to, to determine your feelings and your responses. And I know it's hard. But hang in there. Because it's coming to an end. It's coming to an end. The, the Christian life, the dying to ourselves, is representative of the death of Christ. But Christ is coming back. When we look at the death of Christ, it only has any meaning at all because there was a resurrection that followed. And Christ will return and the Lord is coming. And that is the until. That's what we're waiting for. This crazy world that we live in and I don't simply mean the crazy stuff going on politically in the world around us and the things that might wind us up. I'm talking about the craziness in our own hearts. This, this sinfulness that constantly wants to be right, to be satisfied, to be happy, to be validated. All of these things within us that just bubble and boil and we're just constantly trying to keep them down and, and then we let go for a few moments and they just rise up again this, this constant battle with sin, you know what it has an until it, it's coming to an end Christ is coming back for his people he's going to complete his work of redemption and this will over so what do we do saints be patient be patient now does that mean that we just just tap our fingers a little bit and just okay Jesus is coming no 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 it's far more to it than that he gives us an analogy see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and late rain late late rains you also be patient the the early and late rains um in again James is writing to Jewish believers based in Jerusalem. It's very much a, a localized thing he's referring to here. The early rains were October, November. The late rains were March, April. I haven't got that the wrong way around. Their year works differently than ours. That's the early and late rains. And in between, in the middle, is the bulk of the rain. So there's early rains that come in... Um, you know, we don't much about this in Southern California, do we? But other places have this stuff that falls from the sky and it's called rain. And um, it comes fairly seasonally. And there would there in October and November, there would be the rains. The rains would begin. And then there'd be this period where the bulk of the rain came. And then after that, there'd be a period of, of later rains, where there'd be rain at, at the end. And the farmer doesn't simply say, oh, well, I'm a farmer. So I'm going to do absolutely nothing. The farmer doesn't do that. The farmer works hard. The farmer sows the seed. The farmer plants the seed. The farmer toils and labors. The Christian life is not a life where we say, oh, well, God's got it all sorted out. We'll just sit back and 
let God be God. No, no, no. If you think that, you've clearly not read the New Testament. Christian life is a life of hardship, of struggle, of work, of toil. Not because God's not going to do anything, but for the very fact that God is doing the work, we must work. That's what uh, Paul tells us in Philippians. He says, you know, we, that we, we do this work because God is working in us. We toil, we labor, just like the farmer. But the farmer can toil and labor all he likes. And if those rains don't come, nothing. Nothing. We, uh, Jenny and I, as you know, we went away for a few days for our 25th anniversary this week and we drove up the coast and there were these beautiful ranches that we, we saw as we drove through, these huge areas of land with cattle grazing here and there. It was kind of nice to be out of the hustle and bustle and we stopped at one of the places and we read up a bit on the history of one of these ranches and there was this huge area of land that was owned by someone in the 1860s or something and then what happened was there was this terrible drought I'm going to get the years wrong so I won't even try and remember but there was this terrible drought and then the the next four or five years that land was sold off to a different landowner so there was something there was this 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 amazing portion of land that could could have should have been with the original owner and his descendants forever and ever and ever and then tragedy strikes this is this terrible drought in California, beyond normal California droughts. And there's no grass growing, the cows have nothing to eat, and he is completely wrecked. And he has to sell it off, and everything changes hands. What could he have done differently? Didn't rain. Did he work less hard that year? Did he make bad decisions that year? No, no, it just didn't rain. What the text is telling us is this. We are the farmers in this analogy, and we've got to go on sowing the seeds, doing the jobs, working and laboring and toiling. And God is going to bring the rain. The farmer trusts that the rain is going to come. The farmer sows the seeds because he believes the rain is going to come. Now you get droughts. But you don't get droughts in the character of God. God is always faithful. And God says he is going to return. Christ is going to return. He's going to come back. And we are working and sowing because we trust that one day it will rain. That one day Christ will return and everything will would be good. That all the work would not have been in vain. That all the toil and all the tears and all the struggles and all the sadness, that they will one day all have meaning. They'll have meaning. That nothing will be wasted in God's economy. That everything that was, that was wrong and that was wicked, that was done to us, And everything that was wrong and that was wicked that we did in response. That all of that sin and all of that wrongness will somehow, in the perfect hands of our sovereign God, be used for his eternal good and glory. How? I haven't got a clue. But I know it will. 
And so we labor. I love the word precious here in verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit? You see how even in the midst of the analogy, he's working, he's working through to the conclusion. Just as the farmer, you know, he's like, oh, you know, here we are, we got, we got the harvest. This is, this is good harvest, it's great, and what have you. But if you don't get any rains, and you don't get any harvest, if you get minimal harvest, oh boy, do you realize how precious that fruit is. Because if you don't get the fruit, you don't eat. I want to be absolutely clear that when it comes to eternity, I have all my eggs in one basket, so to speak. I'm trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I'm trusting that his death was sufficient to appease the wrath of God against my sins. That I am forgiven because he was punished. That I'm declared righteous because he lived the perfect life. And I am trusting in that and in that alone. That's it. I don't have a plan B. I don't have a backup plan. I don't have any other options. That's it. And the fruit is entirely dependent upon that. If I'm wrong... Everything I'm doing in my life is a waste. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are to be pitied more than all other men. What an absolute waste of time. But when the rains come, fruit is going to be so precious. So precious. And when the harvest comes in, you won't be thinking about the toil. You won't be thinking about the difficulties, the trials, the hard work, the sweat on your brow, all that was done. You won't be thinking about that. You'll be praising the Lord of the harvest who brought the rain. And that's what he's saying. You also, in the same way, you need to be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That's just such a lovely phrase. Establish. Put down a stake. Say, this is it. This is the land on which I stand. My heart is for Christ. I will not be that double-souled person. I'm not going to pamper myself that, that somehow the world should revolve around me and my desires and my wants, that everything should go the way that I want. Right now, I'm going to establish my heart. I'm going to I'm going to say, when trials come, I'm going to walk straight. When blessings come, I'm going to walk straight. In riches, I'm going to walk straight. In poverty, I'm going to walk straight. I'm going to walk the straight line for Christ. That is what I'm going to do until the coming of the Lord. That there is, that there is in this verse this, this sense that we are going to set ourselves up because we know what's coming. Because we believe in the reins. Because Jesus Christ is coming. That everything that we do has value. Everything. In the same way that if the rains don't come, that all of that labor is lost and it's worthless. In the same way, everything that is done has value when the rains come. Everything that we do has value when Christ returns. And let me add this. 
Everything that is done to us has value when Christ returns. Why? Because every trial is an opportunity for a response. Not merely an opportunity, an opportunity to respond the right way. Every, every trial brings a response. The issue isn't, are we going to respond? The issue is, how are we going to respond? And so, we need to understand that this is something that requires patience. Not just hanging around waiting, but a, a, a labor-intensive patience. A patience that just keeps on working and keeps on toiling and keeps on laboring. In the face of no fruit, in the face of ridicule, in the face of hardship, in the face of slander, in the face of rejection, in the face of sickness, in the face of tragedy. We keep enduring patiently because we have established in our hearts. We have determined, we have decided that Christ is coming and that everything will have value. And so he says then in verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We have in this section, I do think it's one section, but we do have the command and brothers, the command and brothers three times in this section. And this is the second one. You can see how it links to previously, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The other key thing that is emphasized in this passage, along with patience because of the return of the Lord, the other thing that is, comes through incredibly clearly here is the imminence of God's return. The imminence of God's return. Now, I don't talk about these things much because they don't come up in the text that much, but I want to be clear that I do believe that there is going to be something that we call, for better or worse, that we call a rapture. And people get bogged down in the details. I'm really not wanting to get bogged down in those details. The word rapture comes from the Latin word um, rapturo, which means gathering together. The Bible talks about our gathering together with him. And, and I'm not going to preach on that. That's not the point of the text here. I want to stick to the text. But what I want to say in the context of, of this is that one of the main reasons that I believe that Jesus is going to come back for his church, and there's many reasons, there's many reasons, but one of the main reasons I believe that Jesus is going to come back for his church before what we call the second coming, <clears throat> his return in glory to establish his kingdom and to judge the living and the dead, one of the reasons I believe that will happen is because the return of Christ is imminent. Christ, we're told again and again, <clears throat> is going to come for his own and that that coming could happen at any moment. With the second coming of Christ, that is not the case. There are a multitude of things in the scriptures that we're told have to happen before he returns. But his return for the church is imminent. Meaning it may happen in one day or it may happen in 1,000 years. It could happen you know, at any point, short or long. But it is imminent. There is nothing that has to happen first before it happens. Nothing. Absolutely zero. 
And so what is being said here in this text is that, we'll come to the grumble bit in a minute, but the, the judge is standing at the door. His coming is at hand. At any moment, at any moment, Jesus could return. And of course, in the context of James and what we saw a couple of weeks ago with the, hey, do not boast about tomorrow because you don't know your life is a breath. With all of that, we also understand that even if he doesn't return, we could be with him any moment. Any moment, any one of us could be with him. So the coming of the Lord is at hand, but more broadly than that, in life or death, the judge is standing at the door. And so we're back to the Sermon on the Mount, judge not lest you be judged. We're back to the section that we dealt with previously about speaking evil against one another, and I don't want to regurgitate all of that, but James is pointing us back to that so that we understand that the criticism, the grumbling, the complaining that we might have one to another, we all know where that comes from now, don't we? It comes from us. It comes from us. And so he's saying, so don't grumble, because if you're grumbling against one another, what's going to happen? You're going to be judged. Now, this isn't the sort of non-Christian, liberal kind of like, oh, you can't judge me, and you don't judge lest you be judged, and hey, I can get, do what I like now, I'm not going to be judged. You know, No, 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 that's not what's being spoken of here. What's being spoken of here in the context of James is if you are grumbling about the way someone is treating you, then that is exposing your desire to be treated correctly, your pride and your frustration at you not having the comfortable life that you desire. And therefore you need to be careful because God is going to judge that and God opposes that. And you know what? Judgment is coming very soon. How soon? No idea. Very soon. A day? Possibly. A minute? Possibly. A thousand years? Possibly. But very soon. Jesus is coming, and there will be judgment. And James's point here, very broadly, is simply this, that judgment is coming, and you don't want to be a person who's lived your life in a double-souled way. Because where are you going to land when you've lived kind of as a Christian, but also as a non-Christian? Is your Sunday face who you really are, and privately you struggle? which I believe is the case for most of us, but we should not be so naive as to think that for some, the desire to be comfortable is the real thing and the Sunday face is what's fake. So James is pointing us to this. And he's saying, you're going to be judged. You don't want to be judged when you're exposing your pride. Because pride is what God judges. It's... it's delicate the way that James has written this he's not saying hey you guys are all sinners and none of you should think that you're saved no no no, he's not doing that but he's delicately wording it so that we understand that these kind of conflicts are the exposing of the greatest of all sins which is pride and so at this point we might be tempted to just despair I'm certainly not going to win the sermon at this verse, I can promise you. Because I would be as depressed as any of you at that point. And of course there is this danger in that, you know, well, so-and-so does something to me and it's wrong. Can I not say that's wrong? I don't want to be the grumbler. 
That's not what he's talking about here. Sin is sin, and we call sin sin. And if someone sins against you, you go and you confront them because of their sin. No one's saying that we don't address sin. And I am aware, I'm not naive, I am aware that verses like this are often used in the church to mean, (coughs) in the phrase of the false teachers that they love so much, do not touch the Lord's anointed. You know, in the sense of, oh, you're grumbling. Let me show you how that's a sin. And and a way of just avoiding criticism or correction. That's not what James is saying, and that should never be our intent, either in or outside of leadership. Now, what what he's saying here is that is that there is this dissatisfaction in our heart that spills out because our lives are all about us rather than all about God. And that's why we can't consider it a joy when we suffer trials of various kinds. Because it's all about us. And so when it's all about us, a trial is the end of the world because it's messing with us. Whereas in reality, if it's all about God, then a trial is an opportunity. So the grumbling is the outworking of this place, of this this dissatisfaction of heart and this need to be fulfilled. But unless we think that somehow we should be condemned in this way and that we're all grumblers and we're all sinners and oh, I've got pride in my heart, so that's it. I, you know, I better I better do something quickly because the judge is at the door. He gives us this wonderful example and this wonderful illustration. So let's have a look at that. <clears throat> Behold, oh sorry, Let me go back a step. Um, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Okay, so here's our first example. An example of what? Let's be very clear. Of suffering and patience. Uh, some argue, and I would tend to agree, that this is um, what often happens in uh, the Greek language where you have two concepts that are combined together in one. In other words, rather than suffering and patience, that we kind of have a, a patient suffering. The, the two are combined into one, that kind of thing. So that may well be what's going on here. And, and the example that is being given of a kind of suffering that endures patiently without grumbling, without complaining. The the sort of endurance that keeps on doing what is right in the midst of being treated badly. The the, The kind of patient suffering that allows a person to embrace those trials and allow God to, to change them through it. An example of that is the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And that, in verse 10, is sort of like an overview statement. In other words, there are people who have gone before who are representatives of that kind of way of living. Okay, should we have a look at them? I think we should, because James says, behold. So let's have a look at them. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. So when we think of the prophets, we think of, we think of um, Moses, for example. He remained steadfast, right? He struck the rock a second time and wasn't allowed to go into land? Okay, maybe not the best example. Um, Jeremiah, Jeremiah. Okay, there's a better example, Jeremiah. Jeremiah, there he was, everybody was against him and he had to keep on, and he kept proclaiming the word of the Lord and he never complained. Apart from that time he got put in the stocks and then afterwards he got let out and then he said to God, when you called me, you conned me because I never knew it would be this bad. Now, maybe not Jeremiah, let's look at someone else. Oh, man, who can we think of who just suffered perfect? 
Job, yes, Job. He mentions Job. Let's have a look at Job. Behold, those who have remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, at first glance, that verse is bonkers. Not even, not even vaguely understandable, right? Complete madness. Because if there's anybody that complained and grumbled in suffering, it was Job. I mean, just open up at Job chapter 3, make your way through to chapter 39, you've got a solid 30 plus chapters of grumbling. In one sense. Right? And, and then, you can say, um, at, at the end of that section, it says, now you see the purpose of God, <clears throat> you see the purpose of God, uh, well, God basically said, I'm God, I can do what I like. I, no, I don't I think I get that. And then we see the mercy and the pity of God. No, not quite sure I saw that either. God said, hey, Satan, have you seen Job? Have you seen Job? 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 Want to have it? Job? No, no, I'm not sure I see the compassion and mercy of God. So, at first glance, we have here presented to us three main problems. That of all the prophets that have gone before, the example that James picks by name as being the best example of someone who doesn't grumble and who has a purpose in suffering and where the mercy and the pity and the, the kindness of God is seen is Job. That's three big problems right there. If you read the book of Job as somebody who is still living in that place of pride where your comfort, your well-being, your happiness, your life, your goals, your dreams is what's important. If you're in that place, it makes no sense. But, if you've patiently worked through four and a half chapters of the book of James, you might be in a place by now to see this somewhat differently. That Job, he didn't grumble. The, the complaints of Job, and let's just be absolutely clear on this, the complaints of Job are, how do I reconcile who you are with what I'm seeing in my life? This is why, and I've preached this to you a thousand times, and I could ask you for the ABCs, and I'm sure you, I'm not going to do that, don't worry, but I'm sure you can all shout them out in sequence, that the ABCs of biblical amend are A, acknowledgement, B, beholding God, and C, crying out to him. That there is a place where we acknowledge our pain. That is not grumbling. Let me say that again in case anybody missed it. When we are in a, in a place of lament and we acknowledge our pain, the wrongs done to us, how we're feeling, how much of a struggle it is, and we cry that out, that is not grumbling. I think I made that clear. Good. All right. So we, we understand that there is a place for us to do that that isn't grumbling. So what then is the grumbling that James is talking about? It's basically saying, I'm not getting what I need. Which is why in the Psalms of Lament, there is always, as well as the A, the B, which is the beholding of God. 
but recognizing that God is the one who can change things. He's the God of salvation, that his ways are perfect, that he knows what we don't know, that he is sovereign over the waves and over the, and over the creatures within the waves, and he can do all things, that he created us, he created the heavenly realms, that there is nothing outside of his grasp. That he is a covenant-keeping God who will be loving and faithful to the end. That he will keep his promises and he will never, ever, ever lie. And suddenly everything looks different. There's a place for the acknowledgement, but God must be beheld in the midst of that acknowledgement of pain and suffering. Did Job acknowledge his pain? Oh, you betcha. He's the model of that, is he not? But he beheld God. He did not deny who God was. And he at times got close. Because at times he said, I know who you are, God. And yet I can't see that in my circumstances. I know that this is who you are. But I'm looking at this and I can't reconcile these things. Friends, that is not grumbling. That is as valid as valid can be. Grumbling is when we say, this shouldn't be happening to me. Job didn't say, this shouldn't be happening to me. His complaint was, if you're who you say you are, why is this happening to me? It's a very different thing. And so in Job, not only do we see steadfast patience. And how do we know he was steadfastly patient? Because he got to the end. And he got to the end and he still loved God, he still trusted God, and he was still faithful to God. That's the goal, folks. Whatever God throws at you, whatever harm comes to you, keep loving him. Keep trusting him. All the way to the end. That's the steadfastness of Job. But what we also see in Job is we see the purpose of God. And the purpose of God in the book of Job is not seen in Job having more children and Job having more riches, though that's great that it happened. The purpose of God is seen in saying, who is this who darkens my counsel, words without knowledge? When when, when God shows up and says, who are you? Did you make this? Did you do that? Are you in control of this? Are you in control of that? The purpose of God so much in the book of Job is a declaration of his sovereignty and of his majesty and of his place. And in contrast, our place. This is, this is bringing us back to chapter 1 all over again. Where the same words, many of the same words are used. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. Same thing here. That's God's purpose. God's purpose in allowing us to go through all of the stuff that we go through in life. How matter, no matter how horrible it might be, no matter how much we might end up crying out to God like Job did and said, I know who you are and I believe in you and I believe in your love and I trust in your character, but I cannot reconcile it with what you're making me go through. Even then, 
God is working his purposes out because he's forging in us steadfastness. He's making our faith pure as gold. He's taking away our pride that says, not me, I'm too important. This shouldn't happen to me. Don't you know who I am? God says, oh yeah, I do. (laughs) More than you know yourself. And this is the best thing for you right now. And so there is a purpose of God in the midst of this. And how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Compassionate and merciful. Some translate the word here compassionate as pity. Not commonly used. And it just flies completely against the face of what we see in the book of Job. Have you seen my servant Job? Oh yeah, you can do whatever you like to him, but don't touch him. Okay, now you can touch him. Pity? Mercy? You look at that and you say, God, we must have very different definitions of these words. You know what? You're right, we do. And we're the ones that need to move. Because we, in our prideful, sinful state, we consider compassion and mercy making sure that everything is nice all the time. No sickness, no hardship, no trials, no suffering. God loves you too much for that to be your life. He knows that if he does that, you will stay in your sinful state. But the power of Christ given to you by the indwelling Holy Spirit to overcome sin in your life will not be used without trials. But you will continue on pursuing your own comfort, pursuing your own well-being, hoping everything goes the way that you want it to go, changing, manipulating circumstances to make it that way. He can't leave you drowning in your prideful state like that. He can't leave us just seeking after ourselves, getting what we want, and being blissfully unaware of the wretchedness of that state of being and the rightful wrath that should come upon us for such things. How could he do such a thing? Is he not compassionate? Does he not take pity upon us in our sinful state? And allow these things to come that we in the midst of our acknowledgement might behold who he is and on the basis of his goodness and his sovereignty cry out to him. And as we cry out to him, James 4 all over again. You do not have because you do not ask. Crying out. So now we're asking. You ask and you don't have because you ask for the wrong reasons. And so God just 
takes us through these trials and more trials and more trials until we can get to the truth of what James is trying to show us here and now, which is this, that the biggest problem in our life is not that we get sick. It's not that things don't go our way. It's not that tragedy doesn't strike. It's not that we're treated badly. The biggest problem in our lives is our stinking pride. And he adores us. He adores us. He sent his son to die in our place that we could be free of that stinking pride. That's how much he adores us. And that is the mercy and the compassion of God. That substitution, Job got a glimpse of it more than anybody else at that point in history had glimpsed. That's compassion right there. So do we avoid these trials? No. Do we press on? We do. We endure patiently, steadfastly through all of these difficulties. But Jesus is coming. The day is coming when all this is gone. And the encouragement that I feel from James this day in this text is twofold and I want to share these with you in conclusion and hope that you see the same two things. Same two encouragements. Encouragement number one is we don't have to be double-souled. We don't have to be. We don't have to just constantly go round and round and round and round and round in circles, just God exposing our pride and us smothering it, and God exposing our pride and us smothering it. You don't have to live that way. power of the Holy Spirit is sufficient that there will be no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus to walk this cycle of life. That's what James has been talking about all along. But today also, I want us to see the second encouragement. That our lives are a breath. That this brief moment of history that we live in with all of its pain, with all of its trials, with all of its sorrows. And then there's just us, sin removed, glorified bodies, dwelling with our Lord forever. And every day that goes by, because there'll be days, Every week that goes by, because there'll be weeks and there'll be months and there'll be seasons and there'll be festivals and there will be things that are annual, even as we go in through the kingdom. And as this time goes by, the period of our life will become ever smaller. Jen and I just celebrated, as you know, our 25th wedding anniversary but a little bit earlier this year there was another landmark and that landmark was that we spent more time alive married than we spent alive single. 
That's a nice little landmark. We don't, we don't, we don't mark that with a celebration so much, do we? But that's a good thing to celebrate. There'll come a point in the next life when the weeks and the months and the years will go by and then we'll have spent more time without sin than we spent with sin. I'd like to celebrate that day. I imagine I will. And then as the years go by, the percentages, the ratios just shift day by day until as we go beyond the kingdom into eternity. That the time that we spent in sin and in struggle and in suffering is just. Keep your eyes on Christ. Establish your hearts in the coming of the Lord. Jesus is near. His coming is at hand. Your suffering will come to an end. Remain steadfast. Let's pray. Father, I lift up today every hurting heart, every broken soul, every parched spirit. In the midst of acknowledging all that we struggle with, all that we stumble over, all the wickedness done to us. May we look up and see your face. May we behold who you are, gaze at your majesty, and may we bow the knee, confess you as Yahweh, Lord, and trust. Just keep trusting, faithfully trusting. We thank you that you love us enough to not allow us to stay in our stinking pride, wallowing in mud, thinking that we're clean. Change us, we pray. Don't think we're naive at this point to know what kind of prayer that is, what that might entail changes. Make us more like Jesus. Glorify your Son through us, we pray. Because our lives, our existence, and our breath is not about us, and it's not for us. It is about and for him. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.